There's two kingdoms. The kingdom of man, which seeks to dethrone God and put man at the center of all things. There's the kingdom of God, which rightfully, joyfully recognizes that God and His plans and His purposes and His glory is to be at the center of all things. And those two kingdoms are always in conflict. That's why if you're a Christian, you feel like an exile. You feel like a stranger in a strange land. You, you'll always feel a little bit different from everybody else. And what's more, often our hearts grow weary and tired as we look around and we see the evil and we see the turmoil in this present age and we long for relief. And it feels like sometimes our exile will never end. And really what's going on is that your heart in those moments is longing for your true home in heaven. Book of Daniel is a book for exiles. In 605 B.C., the people of God and their nation were taken over by the Babylonian Empire. King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and took many of the Jewish people captive, including Daniel and his three teenaged friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are sent to Babylon to serve the king. And the book of Daniel is written to show God's exiles then and now how we are to survive and even thrive in a land that is not our own. But before we dive in, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word that we're about to look at. And so I pray that you would help us to handle your word with reverence and also with a sense of expectation that you will speak to us. Father, help this preacher rightly divide your word And Father, help these hearers to know and understand your word. Thank you that you are present here with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a culture that encourages us to dream big, to follow your dreams at all costs. We're taught through movies and music and books that the fulfillment of our dreams is the ultimate thing in life, and that the pursuit of our dreams should be the priority to the exclusion of anything else. I was on a, on a website just a few days ago uh, of a major television preacher, and he wrote an article called Dare to Dream. He wrote elsewhere that Scripture tells us that without vision, people perish. And he says, if you don't have a dream or a vision for your life, you're not really going to reach your fullest potential. And indeed, the pursuit and realization of your dreams is a major part of this man's ministry. I read an interesting interview with Phil Vischer. Many of you might not know that name, but you'll know what he's behind. He was the founder of Big Idea Productions, a creator of the popular VeggieTales universe. Ah, now you know who I'm talking about, Larry the Cucumber, Bob Tomato. Some of you grew up with VeggieTales. You know all about that. Uh, It really wove its way into Christian pop culture a few years ago. And Vischer admits in this interview that at one time he bought into the notion that it's all about your dream and your vision. In fact, when he uh, first began Big Idea, his motto was, make no small plans. Pursue a big, hairy, audacious goal. Vischer wanted to be the next Disney. 
And in the late 90s and early 2000s, he was off to a great start in fulfilling that dream as VeggieTales got more and more popular and revenues rapidly increased. But suddenly, it all came crashing down when he expanded the company faster than it could handle. They went bankrupt. He lost it all, and Vischer's kingdom crumbled. Vischer said, I look back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. He was teaching kids mere morality. And he realized that he was building a kingdom, but it was not God's. It was his own. In fact, he admits that his attitude was essentially, here's what I'm going to do, God. You just bless it and watch me go. And then listen to what uh, Vischer says next. I, I find this very insightful. He says, we're drinking a cocktail that's a mix of the Protestant work ethic, the American dream, and the gospel. And we've intertwined them so completely that we can't tell them apart anymore. Our gospel has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good so God will make all your dreams come true. It's the Oprah God. He goes on to say, we've completely taken this Disney notion of when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true, and melded that with faith and come up with something completely different. There's something wrong in a culture, he says, that preaches nothing is more sacred than your dreams. I mean, we walk away from marriages to follow our dreams. We abandon children to follow our dreams. We hurt people in the name of our dreams, which, as a Christian, is just preposterous, unquote. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He had a big, hairy, audacious goal. It was to rule the world, and he was doing a pretty good job at it. His empire was expanding. His riches were increasing. There was nobody around who was as powerful as he was. He was living the Babylonian dream. But as chapter 2 begins, his dream turns into a nightmare, literally. And we see first in the text today the fear of a godless king, the fear of a godless king. Look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Nebuchadnezzar had this nightmare which featured this gigantic, gleaming metal statue which comes crashing to the ground. A statue not unlike what we'll see him build in the very next chapter, which we'll look at next week. It was very common for kings in the ancient Near East to do this sort of thing, to build large images of themselves, and it was a representation of their rule and power, and they place these images throughout their, their realm. Text says his spirit was troubled. That's a little soft in the English. He's actually terrified. He's terrified. He's so upset, text says his sleep left him. Have you ever been that disturbed, that troubled by a dream and you can't go back to sleep? Matter of fact, you're, you're actually afraid to go back to sleep because when you close your eyes, you know what's going to happen. You're, you're going right back into that and you're up for the rest of the night. Well, th- this dream troubled Nebuchadnezzar to the extreme and for us, when we have bad dreams... We don't think much about it later on. We eventually just kind of forget about it and move on. But in the ancient Babylonian world, dreams were a very, very big deal. And to understand your life and to understand your future, you needed to understand your dreams. And so God in his wisdom chooses to communicate something to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream. 
His sleep left him. Nebuchadnezzar feels very threatened by this nightmare. And he can have no peace, no rest until he gets to the bottom of this. And so he summons the court magicians and the wise men. You can look at verse 4 there. Chaldean said to the, the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Now, these Babylonian wise men had an elaborate system of dream reading. And so they want to know the dream so they can go back to their dream manuals and figure it out. They had books and books. They had libraries full of all kinds of, 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 um, of help in interpreting dreams. Archaeologists have found some of these manuals. But Nebuchadnezzar throws these guys a curveball in verse 5. It says, The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Okay, that's suddenly escalated, hasn't it? My goodness. He's gone from, I want you to help me with this dream, to, if you don't do this my way, I'm going to kill you. Nebuchadnezzar is becoming increasingly agitated, increasingly panicked, increasingly unhinged. The wise men are being boxed into a corner, so all they can do is ask again that the king tell them the dream first, and things escalate further. Verse 8, king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time. Because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time changes. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know then that you can show me its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is totally paranoid here. And, and, and not without some reason. These so-called wise men are really just a bunch of charlatans. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. If they were around today, they'd have the, the, you know, the, the 1-800 psychic numbers that you would call up for, for help, for wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar is suspicious of them. He knows that if they can't tell him the dream, then he can't be sure of their interpretation. He can tell them the dream, and they can just make something up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a problem with that arrangement before this dream came along. And therefore, I think his fear and his paranoia are rooted in something deeper than merely his distrust in the wise men. His anxiety and dread isn't rooted in the court magicians. It's rooted in the dream. It's shaken him to the core. This is the great Nebuchadnezzar. This is the most powerful man in the world. And yet in this chapter, how does he come across? He doesn't come across as very great, does he? He comes across as weak insecure, empathetic. So what's happened? What's happened to him? He, he's desperate for an accurate interpretation of the dream, not necessarily because the dream is unclear, but because the essence of the dream is all too obvious, and he desperately hopes that he's wrong. Nebuchadnezzar is fearful. He is anxious. He is scared. The things that he has put his hope in his kingdom, his power, his glory, his reign, his might, his security, all those things are threatened. And that is what is keeping him up in the middle of the night. And his anxiety, his paranoia, his anger at the wise men, all of that is rooted in a heart that is full of fear. Now what's happening here is applicable to princes and paupers. To a despotic king in the 6th century... B.C., 
to an Atlanta suburbanite of 2017 A.D. This is a tendency of all sinful men and women. All of us, apart from Christ's intervention in our lives, are desperately trying to build a kingdom of our own with us in the center as king or queen. And life becomes all about our desires, our preferences, our goals, our dreams, the way that we think life should be. And the kingdom doesn't have to revolve around bad things. It can revolve around good things. Many people have kingdoms built on their careers. And so they make all of their hopes and all of their dreams on career success. Others build their kingdoms on the foundation of their families. If I can just have a a good, happy, healthy, intact family with the perfect marriage and the perfect kids, and if everyone can look at us and see how perfect we are, that's where my security will be. Some even build it on ministry. Well, if I can just serve in this way or do this kind of ministry, I'll be happy. And that becomes your kingdom. We can build kingdoms that revolve around all kinds of things. And if somebody breaks the rules of my kingdom, or if I think my kingdom will suddenly collapse, somebody threatens the peace and stability of my kingdom, I'm going to lash out at them. I'm going to threaten them. I'll even hurt them, if not physically, then in other ways, if need be, to protect my kingdom. Because when you're building your own kingdom, you don't see people as people to love and serve. Instead, people are objects. Objects that you can use to help you build your kingdom or objects to discard if they can't help you get what you want. And so the world is filled with seven billion little tyrants, seven billion little Nebuchadnezzars who are anxious and fearful and paranoid because deep down inside we are afraid that our kingdom is going to be taken away and deep down inside we know that our kingdom is built on a shaky foundation that will not last. Unbelievers and believers fall into this, but with unbelievers that sense of insecurity is worse because Proverbs 10:24 says that what the wicked dreads will come upon him. Unbelievers often feel fine with themselves and the world and are quite happy. But the scriptures tell us that buried underneath all that pretense is dread, is a recognition of the truth that man has suppressed in his unrighteousness. There's a dread that man has, a foreboding sense that the end is coming, and whatever's coming, it's not going to be good. And so the goal of sinful man is to spend as much time and energy he can amusing himself and throwing himself into the building up of his own little kingdom to distract him from the thing that deep down he knows is true and he dreads. That one day... It's all going to be taken away. He'll be held to account for his disregard of God and his rebellion against him. I'm reminded of Jesus' chilling warning in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, drink, be merry. But God said to him, 
fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, Jesus is is contrasting the conflict between the two kingdoms. If you devote yourself to your own kingdom and are not rich towards God, if you disregard his kingdom, it will not go well for you at the end of the line. So we see here the fear of a godless king. We also see in this chapter the futility of a godless religion, the futility of a godless religion. Nebuchadnezzar's wise men make a candid confession in verse 10. They say, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They're about as honest as they have ever been. And they admit that they need revelation from the divine realm, but they also admit that their gods are silence. Their dwelling is not with flesh, they tell the king. In other words, there's this insurmountable distance between us and the, and the gods. We have no access to them, and they're not talking to us. Ergo, the Babylonian gods are just as useless as the Chaldean wise men. Now, this would have been a significant message for those original exiles, because the Jews were constantly in awe by and enamored with the gods of the pagans. That's, the, that's why God punished them and sent them into exile in the first place. But as we saw last week in chapter 1, how Daniel shows us the supremacy of God over the gods of Babylon, so here in chapter 2, we are also seeing that the one true God is a God of revelation. He is the God who speaks, and that's contrasted with the gods of the, Bab- of the Babylonians. Chapter 2 is, an, an, is embarrassing for Babylonian religion because we see, it, we see the absolute impotence of these false gods. They are totally worthless and bankrupt. Turn over to Psalm 115, and, and as you do, let me share with you from Isaiah 44 which expands upon this theme of the futility and uselessness of idols in a rather sarcastic way. Interestingly enough, Isaiah 44, though written before the exile, was meant to be a word for God's people while they were in exile. And Isaiah talks about all the trouble a man goes to to construct something so worthless as an idol. He says in Isaiah 44, this man cuts down a tree, then it becomes fuel for a man, Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat, also he warms himself, and the rest of it he makes into a god. He falls down to it and worships it, he prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my god. How utterly foolish and stupid. Now look at Psalm 115, which also speaks of the futility of false religion, down in verse 4. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. These idols are useless. They profit nothing. They can't do anything. And notice the contrast between the idols and the one true God. Go up to verse 3. It says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. The false gods are worthless and helpless and can't do anything. Our God does whatever He wants. 
as exiles in 21st century America, we are constantly under pressure from a pluralistic culture that wants us to believe there is equality amongst the religions of the world. That, that, all, that all are equally true and all are equally valid and that if we really love other people, we won't criticize other religions and belief systems. If we do that, they say, we're being Islamophobic. And yet, if the psalmist is right, if Isaiah is right, if Daniel is right, then it's actually just the opposite. The most hateful thing you can do to a Muslim, to a Hindu, to a Buddhist, to an atheist, the most hateful thing you can do is to affirm them in their feudal religion and say, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and it's all good, I'm okay, you're okay. That's not okay. Because the sad irony of false religion is that people think they are finding salvation. They say, deliver me, for you are my God. But guess what happens? Nothing happens. Because their gods do not speak, they do not hear, and they cannot help. What men need is not affirmation in their futility. What man needs is salvation from sins from the one true God through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do you know that, Deemer? I know that. Because my God is not like the Babylonian gods. Those Chaldean wise men said of their gods that their dwelling is not with flesh. But the Apostle John says Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And so the most loving thing that we can do during our time in exile is to introduce people to the God who speaks and to tell them what He has said. So, Father, have mercy on us as a church for the times that we have failed to proclaim the one true God in a culture drowning in futile idolatry and worthless religion. And help us, Father, to have a greater love for the loss that we might be better witnesses for you in our land of exile. So we have the fear of a godless king. We see the futility of a, of a godless religion. But, but an amazing contrast now, we see the confidence of God's servant. The confidence of God's servant. So the death decree goes out. They find Daniel. And, uh, and look at his response here. Starting in verse 12. Actually, let's go down to verse 14. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. There's a fascinating contrast here between Daniel and the pagans. The wise men are at their wits' end. They're frustrated. They're hopeless. They don't know what to do. And how about Nebuchadnezzar himself? Here we've seen this mighty king, this powerful warlord in charge of the world, suddenly emotionally destabilized, fearful, and panicking. He's completely melting down. He's out of control. On the other hand, we have Daniel, 16, 17 years old, taken from his land against his will, 
forced to serve in exile. Words out on the street that all the wise men are to be executed. That would include Daniel. And yet he is calm, he is rational, he is confident. How unlike many Christians today when their day doesn't go well. He's not panicking. He's not freaking out. He's not getting on Twitter and blasting King Nebuchadnezzar's harsh policies and demanding impeachment. Many times we respond more like Nebuchadnezzar in in fearful, anxious paranoia than we do like Daniel. And I wonder if it could mean that we have begun living for our own kingdom and not for God's. So what's the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? They're both going through a trial. Daniel's trial is actually worse, I would argue. Nebuchadnezzar's having horrible dreams, yes, but Daniel is on the chopping block, on the verge of execution, and yet they respond in totally opposite ways. Why, Why is that? It's because they fear different things. Psalm 112, which is one of my favorite psalms, says this. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And then the psalm goes on to say of this man that he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. You see, Nebuchadnezzar does not fear God. He fears that his kingdom will crumble. He's put his hope in something that's shaky and vulnerable and temporary, so he is afraid of bad news. He's afraid of everything, even his closest advisors. His heart is not firm, it's weak. But Daniel fears God, and the man who fears God has reason to fear nothing else. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord, trusting the one who is always reliable with a goodness and faithfulness that will endure forever. Proverbs 28.1 says that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The difference between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is Proverbs 29.18, that verse quoted, or should I say misquoted earlier, by that preacher I referred to earlier, that says, where there is no vision, the people perish. People read that verse often through the lens of a 21st century American follow-your-dreams kind of mentality, and so what we think it means is make no small plans, have a big vision, pursue a big, hairy, audacious goal, and follow your dreams, and then God will bless it. That's not what that verse means. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, had a big vision. He had big plans, and he's quaking in his boots and losing it. When we misuse Proverbs 29.18 in that way, it can actually fuel our tendencies to prop up our own kingdom against God's. Because when the proverb talks about vision, it's not referring, folks, to your vision. It's referring to God's. It's talking about a prophetic vision. It's talking about God's Word. Without God's Word, without His redemptive revelation, people will perish. But then listen to what the rest of the verse says, and most often people leave this out. The rest of the verse says, well, the whole verse says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people perish, but blessed or happy is he who keeps the law. Daniel has built his life and hope on the foundation of God and his word, not on the foundation of Daniel's goals and Daniel's dreams. And therefore, he is thriving, even during intense times of 
trial and difficulty because God and His Word never fail. God and His Word are always reliable. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, has built his life on the shaky, unreliable foundation of his own kingdom, and he is becoming undone because it is now being threatened. Nebuchadnezzar responds with anger and panic. Daniel responds with confidence in God, and then that leads to prayer, verse 17. Then Daniel went to the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, this too is instructive for exiles like us. Because what do we often do when we are suddenly faced with trials and difficulties? What's our first response? Often our first response is we try to figure out a solution. We rely on our own cleverness and ingenuity to solve the problem. We panic. We get angry. We try to force the situation to change. There's all kinds of responses we go through. And sometimes, and for some of us, unfortunately, very often, prayer is way down low on that list. For some of us, prayer is the very last thing on the list. To our shame, prayer is the last resort. It's the thing that we do after we've tried everything else. Instead of a last resort, prayer should be our first line of defense. So Daniel and his friends have this prayer meeting, and God answers. And in verse 20, Daniel bursts forth in a beautiful song of praise to God, and he begins his praise in verse 20. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And then look how he ends the prayer, verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. Did you catch that? The, that wisdom and might that Daniel says belong to God in verse 20 we discover in verse 23, has now been given to Daniel. And what a powerful message for those Jewish exiles. God isn't just God in the boundaries of Israel. Even in the heart of Babylon, God is God and will give everything His people need to survive and thrive, even wisdom, even might. So Daniel is brought before the king and is asked if he can give the dream its interpretation. And Daniel says, verse 27, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Notice Daniel immediately deflects the attention from himself. This is not about me. And he, and he puts the spotlight on God. And once more, we see a dig at Babylonian religion. The enchanter's gods are useless, but there is a God in heaven, and He reveals mysteries. And what is that mystery? It's all about the supremacy of God's reign. I, I would add the global supremacy of God's reign. Look at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, <clears throat> a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. <clears throat> 
And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's quite a dream. So what does it mean? Daniel is so kind to tell us, and starting in verse 36, I'm glad you asked. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. He says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar liked that part of the interpretation. Wow. Oh, this is not so bad after all. I won't kill you after all, Daniel. This is, this is good. I'm on top, and I'm gold. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire. And notice in particular verse 37. How did Nebuchadnezzar get his position of power and might? It's very important. It says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory... That would have been very encouraging to the demoralized Jewish exiles who would have been tempted to think that the bad guys are winning, that evil was running the show. But Daniel says, no, 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 that's not, that's not it at all. The only reason Nebuchadnezzar has any kind of power is because God put him in that position. God is in charge. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. Now, when Daniel says inferior, he doesn't mean inferior uh, in power. It might mean inferior in glory and in unity. It's interesting, as you, as you go down the statue, the, the, the values of the metals seem to uh, decrease as you start with gold and you end up with iron. But, but as you go down the statue, the, the hardness and the toughness seems to increase. Most conservative scholars agree, and I agree with them, that the Silver Kingdom is the Medo-Persian Empire who conquered Babylon and became the, great, the next great world kingdom. Uh, Second half of verse 39, Daniel, working his way down the statue, says, And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. This appears to be Greece. They overtook the Medo-Persian Empire, and under Alexander the Great, conquered more real estate than any of those two previous empires. Verse 40, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. We all know who came after Greece. The greatest of the empires in that day, the Roman Empire. It's powerful. And yet it has an inherent weakness as the next several verses talk about a mixture of iron and clay in the toes of the feet. There's some debate and speculation about what that means. I'll let you work through that yourself. But let's zero in on the main point of it all. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. Verse 44, and in those days, I'm sorry, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. What's the point? What's the point? Point is, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. But a kingdom is coming that will endure forever. 
and will shatter the kingdoms of man and will one day encompass the whole earth. So, don't live for and put your hopes in another kingdom. And don't try to build your own. Notice that God's kingdom starts out as a small stone. Very interesting. A small stone. Very unimpressive. Very ordinary. Of little value compared to the statue. And yet the coming of, uh, of something this seemingly insignificant, this little stone, will mark the beginning of the end for the kingdom of man. And, and when would that happen? When, when will God set up his kingdom? Verse 44 tells you, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. What kingdoms? The ones he just talked about. That means that even in the days of Babylon, God was sovereignly working and setting the stage and preparing the way for his kingdom. Now, that also would be good news for the Jewish exiles. They needed to know that God was working even in their day. But they also needed to know that the fall of Babylon would not mark the final victory for God's people. Another kingdom would rise and still another would rise. As the scripture says elsewhere, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And of course you and I, on the other side of history, have seen the beginnings of what the Jewish exiles could only anticipate. Because it happened that in the fullness of time... During the time of that iron kingdom that was crushing and smashing everything into pieces, an event so seemingly small happened, so seemingly insignificant compared to the might and the power of Rome, so unimpressive compared to the mighty Caesar Augustus, a backwater teenage country girl from a backwater province in Israel gave birth to a baby boy in a stable in the little town of Bethlehem. So small, so insignificant. Who cares? And he grows up, and he teaches, and he does miracles, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, the kingdom of God is among you. He stands before that arrogant Roman governor, Pilate, and looks him in the eye and says, my kingdom is not of this world. And he says in Luke chapter 20, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see, while many rejected him, and many still do, because he appears to be weak and insignificant and foolish, the stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone, the most important stone. And Daniel chapter 2 tells us that this small stone will become a mountain and fill the whole earth, fulfilling Zechariah 14, 9, which says that the Lord will be king over all the earth, fulfilling Revelation eleven fifteen, which says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus went on to say in Luke 20 that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is saying, receive me or be crushed. Friends, Jesus is the stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that pulverizes the statue, that shatters the kingdom's of men. And so the message of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is good news for God's exiles, both then and now, who are weary with this present age. But it's a source of consternation 
for those who have remained in rebellion against God. Maybe you're one of those rebels against God. Maybe you've spent your whole life building your own kingdom in defiance of God's kingdom. You've been a rebel against Him, and so God's word for you today is that sooner or later, you and your kingdom is going to be crushed by the stone that you rejected. It's that simple. But the good news for you is that unlike Nebuchadnezzar, unlike the evil kings of this age, Jesus Christ has mercy and compassion on rebels, on people who have committed treason against Him, on people who've tried to set up rival kingdoms. When Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago, some people thought, well, this is it. that The time has come for the rebels to be crushed. But Jesus didn't come to crush the rebels. That won't happen until later. We're, we're still waiting for that. Jesus came first to be crushed so that rebels might be saved. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Jesus died on the cross as a representative for sinners so that if we trust in Him, we would be forgiven of our sin, the sin of living for our own kingdom. He was raised from the dead so that we who believe shall one day be raised with Him. And then God does something else unthinkable. Jesus makes another amazing promise to believers in Luke 12, 32, ex-rebels, ex-treasonist. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? We receive a kingdom that Hebrews 12, 28 says is unshakable. When we release our dreams and let go of our little kingdom, God gives us something much better in return, His kingdom. And all of the blessings and peace and joy that come with it now and forever. Because unlike the kingdoms of man, this kingdom endures forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for having mercy on us. Us who have tried to build our own kingdoms, us who have tried to use you as a subcontractor to build our own kingdom. Father, we recognize this morning that we deserve the death penalty for treason, and yet we're so thankful that you're a God of compassion and that you came not to round up the rebels and destroy them. You came to be counted among them to save them. Father, for those of us who are saved already, I know for many of us who've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we still battle those old tendencies to prop up our own kingdom, to put our desires and our preferences and our agenda above everything else and to make that thing the ultimate. Father, will you crush those dreams and crush those rival kingdoms? so that we can more fully experience everything you have for us in your kingdom. 
And Father, I pray for those who came in this morning as hard-hearted rebels, shaking their fists before God, maybe not literally, but in their hearts. Father, would you show mercy on them and awaken faith in their hearts so that they might plead with you for mercy and forgiveness on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for everything that you are. Thank you for everything that you've done. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth and in our hearts as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.